This is a picture of the matchless worth of the kingdom of heaven. But this guy sells everything he owns. Isn't that a bit over the top? Well, it's a parable, and it's meant to make a point. And the point is this. That true, it's, it's, not that, it's not that Christians don't own assets. Of course they do. This, this parable is really focusing on the fact that true Christians are willing to sacrifice anything necessary in order to attain the kingdom. And one thing God calls us to get rid of are idols. Idols are the things in life that are so precious to us that we're willing to live our life according to their rules that they'll just be ours to have and to hold from this day forward. Maybe your idol is power or comfort, or maybe it's status or acceptance. The problem with idols is that Jesus is king in the kingdom of heaven. And if you're taking your orders from something else, then your lordship is divided, and your idol must go. Just as this man had to sell all he had in order to get the funds necessary to buy the treasure in the field, we will need to pawn off our idols if we want to live in the kingdom. We should notice, though, that this man in this parable doesn't sell all of his stuff grudgingly. He thinks it's the best purchase he's ever made. It's because of his joy that he's able to give up all that he has in order to get the field. He understands that this treasure is worth far more than all of his possessions combined. In the same way, the kingdom of heaven is a steal of a deal. In the kingdom, the grass is always greener than it is in all the other lawns around it. It really is the best place to be. Of course, just because the grass is actually greener in the kingdom doesn't mean that we always think it is. Sometimes we might hear about the amazing vacations that other people get to go on, and we think, man, I would love to rent an island in the Indian Ocean for a month. If only I could use all of my money for pleasure, then I'd be happy. But instead, it's just me and Jesus over here, translating the ESV back into the original Greek. But this parable and the following parable are meant to instruct us that there's no better place to live than under God's reign, even if it means we have to get rid of some things that we love in order to move in. Now let's look at the next parable, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. If you saw this merchant today, you'd probably think he was a fool. Doesn't he know he's supposed to diversify his portfolio? But he sells everything he has, all of his inventory, maybe his house, everything. If the market for pearls plummets, one big pearl isn't going to keep him warm at night. But he trusts that this investment is a sure thing. And according to the Bible, he's right. Like the previous parable, this parable teaches us that disciples must be willing to give up anything and everything in order to enter the priceless kingdom of heaven. Almost any Christian would confess that at times they've found it difficult to rejoice in God. Some of you may be feeling that right now. You may look at a parable like this and think, oh yeah, I know the kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing there is, got it. But do you know? Whether you stumbled upon Jesus and you couldn't resist him, or found Jesus after searching for spiritual fulfillment from every religion known to man, your familiarity with Jesus and his kingdom can give rise to forgetfulness. Of course we forget things over time, so I'm sure most of us in this room would agree that we need a refresher every now and then to keep up our performance at work or at home. But are you really going to go out and refresh what is familiar to you? Do you regularly keep up with your college friends, French so that you can continue to put fluent in French on your resume? Or does it look more like a one-night cram session before you interview for a new position in Paris? Are you the parent who surprises your son with a nice set of little cowboy boots only to hear him tell you he doesn't want to be a cowboy anymore, he wants to be a doctor? And then your wife tells you that he's been out of cowboy stuff for more than a year. 
And we've all been in situations like this before, but what do they teach us? I think they teach us that familiarity gives rise to forgetfulness. We think we know all about the kingdom of heaven because we've been hearing about it week after week. So we see these parables and we decide, oh, yeah, we can check out because I already know what you're talking about. But let me ask you, how deeply do you know that the grass is always greener in the kingdom? Have you started to speculate on what it would look like if you really applied this to your life? Is this a principle that informs everything you do and say? We can always better learn what we know. If you find yourself stuck in joyless Christianity, or if you're going to church on Sunday mornings just because that's part of your weekly routine, reflect on the man who stumbled upon buried treasure. Why did he joyfully sell everything to buy the field where it was buried? What is it about King Jesus that led his disciples to follow him, leaving behind their jobs to become itinerant students? If you know your joy is weak, meditate on questions like these. Honestly admit that your passion is feeble and your obedience is lax. Then pray that God would renew your love for him and the joy of your salvation. Now to deep truth number two. The left is not the right. We pick up now with the verse of the parable of the net in verse 47. It reads, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. Here the kingdom of heaven is being compared to the situation of a drag net. This type of net would be drawn along by two boats along the sea and then people on shore would pull it in using long ropes. So in this parable, the net does what we would expect. It's thrown into the sea. It gathers both good and bad fish until it's full. Then it's drawn ashore and men sort out the good fish and the bad fish. The good fish go into containers. The bad fish are thrown away. Beginning in verse 49, Jesus himself explains the meaning of this parable. He says, So it will be at the end of the age at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says that the net becoming full refers to the fullness of time or the end of the present age. He says the role of the men on shore will be played by his angels who will separate out the evil from the righteous. Jesus also says that the evil people will be thrown into the fiery furnace of hell a truly horrible place. Based on the contrast Jesus is making here, we can also assume that the containers that the good fish were put in represent heaven. So the main point of this parable then is this, that there will be a time when the righteous and the evil will be sorted out and sent to different places. There's not just one afterlife that all people enter. There are two, heaven and hell. If we skip ahead to Matthew chapter 5, we find a little more detail in how and why this separation will happen. You can see the reference there in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. I'm just going to read some selections of it. Starting in verse 31, we read, When the Son of Man, who is Jesus, comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Skip down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the evil, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Let's get down to verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here you have it, straight from Jesus' mouth. People will be separated. The righteous sheep will be placed on his right. The evil goats will be placed on his left. Some people think there's no hell and everybody will end up in heaven. But Jesus' left isn't his right. They lead to very different places, populated by different people experiencing very different realities. The righteous on God's right will enter into eternal life, and the evil on God's left will enter into eternal punishment. So who's righteous enough to get in? Only Jesus and everyone who is declared righteous. The Bible tends to use the word justified, to describe being declared righteous. Okay, so who's justified then? Galatians 2.16 is really helpful in answering this question, I think. Here Paul is speaking to a group of people who think that by keeping God's law, they're going to earn eternal life. Paul tells them, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What this verse tells us is that only those who are declared righteous as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ will be on God's right and enter into eternal life. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, you may find it fascinating that Christianity clings to the fact that we can't be good enough Christians to earn our way into heaven. But that's precisely why we love to talk about Jesus. We believe he's the only mediator available between God and humankind. For those of you who do consider yourself a Christian, this probably seems like the same old, same old. You're thinking, God, man, sin, salvation. I can already explain it. I've already responded in faith. Let's move on to the next point. I want to share another danger of familiarity with you. Here it is. Familiarity isn't intimacy. You may be very familiar with President Obama. You may know his life story. You can state his positions on political issues, and you go to his campaign rallies but I doubt any of you have an intimate friendship with him. He probably doesn't even know you exist. Likewise, you can be familiar with Jesus Christ. You can know his life story, state his positions on moral and theological issues, and you can go to his rallies on Sunday mornings. But despite all that you may know about him, you may not have a personal relationship with him. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation? And do you follow him without reserve? Being able to explain the gospel is not the same as embracing the gospel like a life preserver you desperately need. Don't let your familiarity with Jesus keep you from intimacy with him. There are two eternal realities at play, heaven and hell. Those on Jesus' left will not enjoy the same eternal satisfaction and eternal intimacy with him as the people will who are on his right. The Bible says that everyone who receives Jesus becomes God's child by adoption. God longs to adopt you as his son or daughter, 
And he's shown his love for you by sending his son, Jesus, on an incredibly costly journey, a journey that culminated in his death by crucifixion so that he could make a way for you to get to God and to be saved from the fiery furnace. I hope that you will take his offer seriously, and I pray that you will decide to accept it. Deep truth number three. You're supposed to teach it. Let's look at verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Earlier in verse 36, the disciples had asked Jesus for an explanation. And our parables this morning are part of the explanation that Jesus gave them. Jesus now asks them whether they understand these parables and the truths about the kingdom that they communicate. And the disciples affirm that they do understand. The disciples are the ones who get these explanations of the parables, so they know more than the crowds around Jesus. But we'll also see that in chapter 15 that the disciples will once again be rebuked for failing to understand. But let's give them a little credit at least. At least they're making some progress. So let's see what Jesus says about disciples who have come to understand the kingdom of heaven. Verse 52. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is a hard verse to understand. And scholars have come up with some different interpretations of what Jesus is saying here. So we're going to take it slow and go bit by bit. He starts with the word, therefore. He's saying, okay, since you understand, now let me tell, me, now let me tell you what you need to do. Now Jesus starts talking about scribes, which in his day played an important role as teachers of the law in a more general sense. This idea is picked up by the New International Version, which translates this word, teacher of the law, instead of scribe. So let's go on now. Jesus says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven... Dot, dot, dot. This verb here comes from the noun that we translate as disciple. So in a very real sense, Jesus is talking about being discipled in the kingdom of heaven. So I think that the New, the New American Standard Bible is actually a pretty good translation here when it translates this to say, Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven... Now then, who's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about his disciples. In the immediate context, he's talking to these 12 men whom he has been forming into disciples of the kingdom and who will go out and teach what he's taught them. But in a broader sense, he's talking about all Christians, including those who, everybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives a famous charge to his disciples called the Great Commission. But this is our commission too. He doesn't just want there to be baptized disciples in the first and second centuries. He wanted a church that would grow and develop until he returned. If we look at this commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we read this. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus sends Christians out to make disciples, not only by preaching the gospel and baptizing converts, but by teaching Christians to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Jesus' disciples are to teach God's word to others. So all Christians are part of the teaching and discipleship ministry of the church. Now let's flip back to our passage in Matthew 13. Let's take a look at the rest of verse 52. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house 
who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So if Jesus is talking about his disciples, what does this mean? The word treasure here is often used in the New Testament to refer to someone's heart. If that's what it means here, then Jesus is saying that these, that these disciples are to be drawing out new and old things from what they've ingrained deep within their own understanding. The old things here are probably the Old Testament as a whole, while the new things are the revelation that Jesus has given them, the revelation which will later grow into the, the whole set of books that we call the New Testament. In essence, this parable is a call for all who follow Jesus to become whole Bible Christians who know the Bible and the fundamentals of the gospel well enough that they can effectively teach others and guide them toward obedience to Jesus. You may be thinking, hey, that's great, but I'm no Bible expert, and I don't have the gift of teaching others. That may be the case. But as we heard earlier in the Great Commission, you are called to be a teacher in some sense. And if we're supposed to teach Scripture, then we need to keep learning it ourselves. We need to keep it in, we need to uh, take it in wherever possible. We need to apply, apply it wherever and whenever we can. Scripture needs to permeate our community. We need to talk about it, teach it to one another, and use it to encourage each other. That's one of the reasons why our ethos community studies are discussions rather than lectures. You are all part of the teaching and discipleship ministry of your ethos community because the Bible says that all Christians are priests and all are teachers. So we want to give you space to share your insight with each other. This isn't to say that every Christian at UBF has the same opportunities to teach or the same skill in teaching, but it is to say that we want every Christian to play some role in the teaching ministry of our church. But whatever your teaching ministry looks like, I want to encourage you with a verse from the book of Colossians. Colossians 3.16 reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. May his word dwell in you richly, May it seep down into your heart and your actions so that you obey what it says. And then may you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom, sharing God's word from out of the deep understanding that he's given you. And now deep kingdom truth number four. It's not what you expected. Our efforts to understand what Jesus has revealed in his teaching and what God has revealed through his word are extremely important, but will never achieve perfect knowledge. If Jesus returns and you realize that he and his kingdom don't look or act like you expected, how are you going to react? If we look at verses 53 to 58, we'll see one way that people tend to react when things don't jive with their expectations. Let's start with verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus' hometown is Nazareth, a small village of less than 2,000 people. Coming back to Nazareth meant that Jesus was returning to the village that knew him as a former carpenter who used to work with his father Joseph in the family trade. We don't know what Jesus taught as he returned to the synagogue of his youth, but we do get a picture of the response that he got. 
the crowd was deeply offended. We have a proverb within American culture that I think applies to this situation. Familiarity breeds contempt. The townsfolk knew all about Jesus and his family. They thought it was offensive for a man with so little formal instruction in God's word to be teaching on his own authority. In their mind, they had this orthodox box of what God's word said. And though they were astonished at the things that, uh, that Jesus said, they ultimately didn't fit into the box. When we're familiar enough to put, put a label on someone, we feel an amount of security from having a sense of how we should relate to them. But when that person takes their label off, crosses out what we've written, and then writes a new label for themselves, it messes with us. When I first met my lovely wife, Chanel, she was as Midwestern as she could be, friendly, talkative, and humble. But I soon learned that she wasn't from Wisconsin or Michigan. She was from Connecticut. Connecticut, that small state on the East Coast, where everyone is busy, gruff, and self-important. Don't you know I'm telling the truth? Well, honestly, knowing that very fact about her made me think that she must be self-important in some way. And after all, she was doing a PhD. But it took a while for me to adjust my categories. First, I just thought that a nice woman like her must be a cultural oddball. But now I've met a number of wonderful people in New England and have figured out that it's a halfway decent place after all. (laughs) You see, when we're familiar enough with something to give it a label or a category, it can take a lot of work for us to change the label. We first tend to be contemptuous of things that don't fit our categories. We're suspicious of them, and we won't really be able to make sense of how we should relate to them until we can find a category for them. So that's the principle I think that we're kind of seeing here. Familiarity can breed contempt. But this is really a matter of unbelief. I didn't immediately believe that Chanel was as nice as she appeared to be once I learned she was from Connecticut. Instead, I trusted my own category for people from the East Coast more than I trusted her. And that's the response we see in this passage. The townspeople have a category for who rabbis are, what God's word says, and what Mary and Joseph's family is like. When Jesus challenged these categories, they trusted in their familiar categories more than they trusted in who Jesus said he was. And that's why Matthew says it was unbelief that led them to question Jesus and take offense to his teaching. I think this story of how Jesus was rejected by his own hometown helps us understand how we should respond to a Jesus that doesn't color within our lines. The response of these Nazarenes was unbelief. They heard what Jesus did, what he taught, and who he said he was, but it messed with their, with their categories so much that they rejected him in an act of unbelief. But what we see all over Scripture is that Jesus and his kingdom do defy our expectations. The Apostle Peter knew this from personal experience. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verses 25 to 35. This is one of those times where Jesus blows Peter's categories. And as we'll see, Peter's response is all too typical. Verse 27 reads, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 
And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling to the crowd with him, um, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Peter got it dead on when he said Jesus was the Christ, the coming king promised by the Old Testament. But when Jesus starts blowing Peter's categories of what it means to be a king in God's kingdom, when Jesus tells him that his royal promenade will be a path of suffering that will lead to rejection in his own death, Peter's familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus, you can't do that. No way. That's not what kings do. But Jesus won't be put in Peter's box. He rebukes Peter. And then he offers a call to anyone who would follow him that they too must walk the path of suffering. That whoever would lose their life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel would be saved. That is a radical king in one radical kingdom. It's not what Peter expected. And it's not what any of us would have expected. It's an upside-down kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. And the greatest one is the humblest servant. As you think through the boxes that you've tried to put Jesus and God's word in, remember our first ethos statement, humble orthodoxy. Let's come to God with an open mind and a humble heart that asks him to show us what's right and true and good. Let's pray that God would help us trust him even more than we trust our own categories of understanding. And let's pray for transformation, that God would let what is familiar to us in his word be something that captivates our hearts, changes our actions, and reshapes our identity. Because God wants to use his word to change the way we live, we need to press in, to further, to, we need to press in further to things we already believe so that they can embed themselves within our hearts and actions and transform us into the image of Christ. Beware of the dangers of familiarity. It gives rise to forgetfulness as we tend to neglect what we think we know. Familiarity is an, is an intimacy, so we can substitute our knowledge about Jesus for our deep need to know him personally and to love, worship, and trust him. And beware, familiarity breeds contempt. Don't hate what you can't domesticate. Hold your expectations of God's will and God's word loosely as you extend your hands to him in worship. Let him set the agenda. Let him be your authority and watch him transform you into the image of Christ. Press in further and further into God's word. Immerse yourself in his scriptures. Cherish and adopt them. Then go and teach others. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. May we do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be our foremost treasure, that we would be willing to sacrifice anything if we can only have you. May you use your word, even the things that we think we already know, to transform us. May you teach us deep understanding. May you use your word to impact the way we live and change who we are. And may you do this for your glory alone. In your name we pray. Amen.